Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at www.restorationlex.com slash this week. About 10 years back, I went on what has continued to be probably my favorite family vacation, uh, we only had one kid back then. We went to this place called Tybee Island, Georgia. Uh, yeah, you've been there before. It's near Savannah. It's a wonderful place. It's beach, but it's also history. I love history. I like to get around and do stuff, and then there's also a beach. We decided one day to take this excursion, thinking it would be a good idea. Uh, my, my brother and his wife, Sheena, who's upstairs with the kids right now, they were, they were um, with us there. They had just got married, and we decided to go on a kayaking trip out into this big bay near the water and on these tandem kayaks. Tandem kayaks are the worst idea that America has ever produced, I'm pretty sure. There's dark things that can happen on tandem kayaks. So we go out, and it's a beautiful trip, right? You go out into this bay, and there's this 1850s lighthouse that you can like go up on this, this beach, and you can climb up in there if you want to and see it. It's beautiful. And so we went out there a long way, and then we turned around to come back because the time was about to do it. What we did not realize by the way we timed it was is that the tide was going out as we were coming in. And Lord Jesus, was that difficult. It would have been difficult on your own as an individual kayaker, but with tandem kayaks, it was just as difficult to work out getting back in there. The tide was pushing. It was a fight. It was the same waters. It was the same distance, but not the force that we anticipated. And it took us probably twice the amount of time just to get back to where we were supposed to be. Absolutely exhausting. I think about that a lot, that that picture in Uh, What we often face in our day in that we are trying to get to something to where we need to be and it feels like something is pushing against us, a tide beneath the surface that we have no control over that used to be easier than than it was before, but now it just feels like we are constantly fighting against something. I think about that in in the context of our passage here today, Acts chapter 2 that we just heard earlier, this undeniably beautiful picture of what supernatural community can look like, of what a shared way of life can look like. But it also feels like our desires around community often run up against the tide pushing against us, that it's a beautiful idea. It's an idealized picture, but it's rarely realized. Almost everyone in this room here today would say, I value community. I think community and good relationships are a great idea, but in reality, real authentic community is hard, isn't it? It's difficult. Even if we want it with everything we are, it can feel like there's so much pushing up against us and keeping us away from those desires. To paraphrase this book about our world that we're living in, Andy Crouch, he writes in this book, The Life We're Looking For, we inhabit a personalized but an impersonal world. Speaking of the tides 
pushing against us. In every turn, we have a world that has been customizable to our needs and to our desires. We are encouraged to personalize our identities, our religion, our time, our friendships, everything according to what we want. But as life has become more personalized, what we've also found is it's simultaneously become an incredibly lonely world, right? In a 2020 study during the pandemic, Cigna did, there's 52% of Americans who said they felt lonely. Over half of America feels lonely. It's staggering. Medical professionals consider loneliness to be an epidemic right now. In, in countries like Great Britain and Japan, they actually have entire government departments that they've created just to combat loneliness. Here in America, Vivek Murthy, he is, was the, uh, the, worked for the White House, and he, he's writing in the Harvard Business Review. He says, during my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes. It was loneliness. On top of this, studies have found that our social isolation and our feelings of loneliness are detrimental to our physical health. They have a premature death increase of 14%, making loneliness the health equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day and more deadly than obesity. That's what we're dealing with. It's staggering. And on top of the isolation that we probably know that we inhabit, we have Stop, we have not just stopped looking for places to belong. So even though across the board, across religion and social demographics, the evolve, involvement in social organizations have gone down like churches, we're still looking for that connection. We're still looking for belonging. We're just finding it in different places. One of the primary ways we find that belonging and we find that connection is through something called tribalism. We find people who look like us and think like us and act like us and vote like us. And we silo up together with people who are just like us and find who they are, they who are, you know, evil, they who are on the wrong side. And let's be honest, it feels like when you hole up with those kind of people, you find this deep connection because it's easy to find community when you have a common enemy, right? when you have someone or something to fight against, but it's counterfeit community. It is counterfeit connection. New York Times columnist David Brooks, he, he speaks to this in one of his books, says, tribalism seems like a way to restore the bonds of community. It certainly does bind people together, but it is the dark twin of community. Community is connection based upon mutual affection, but tribalism is connection based on mutual hatred. Community is based on humanity, tribalism on a common foe. I mean, let me let's be real. I mean, church is a place where people expect to have their tribalism affirmed. We've had people who have left our church because we didn't meet their political expectations, their tribalistic expectations. And to be honest, I, I hope you're not here because you feel that sense of that, that you wouldn't be able to find your enemy in a room like this and step into it. We're being discipled every day into silos of sameness. We're being siloed into groups where we never have to push against those places within us that we don't want to face. 
There are two undercurrents here we see, this social isolation, this tribalism. It's, it makes our life easier to do on our own. It makes our life so much more comfortable and less scary when I don't have to risk being around people who aren't exactly like me. That's out there. Now, let's talk about the tides that push against us in here. Because internally... As you walk into a room like this and you hear conversations about community, there's already things wrestling within us that are causing us to push against that connection that we know we want and long for, but somehow can't find. Every time you walk into this room, you're walking into this room with insecurities, with stories, with trauma, with backgrounds that impact the way that you connect with other people. Maybe you have had bad experiences with church before, bad experiences with community. I have had bad experiences with community. I remember the first small group I was ever a part of, two times in, I looked at Erica and I said, do we really have to do this? Like, this is awful. It was so fake and, and, and so surface level, and I just didn't feel any connection to anybody, and I started to wonder, if this is a value in the church, why, why do I have to be a part of it? But I also know that bringing into rooms like this when we're sitting around living rooms and tables, all of the baggage that we're bringing into those rooms, all of the stories we come into these places with impact the way and our ability to connect with other people. So with those two things in mind, the fact that you and I are constantly encouraged to personalize and separate from others, with the fact that we carry into rooms like this all of our insecurities and baggage, we understand why people can value community and yet really, really struggle to find it, right? And yet, you and I know, as we read Acts 2, we're made for something like this. We're made in the image of a God who literally, eternally dwells in community. Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one, dwelling eternally as community right there in front of us. So we should come to Acts 2 knowing that finding what we're looking at is not based upon our best strategies. It's not some type of community that if we figure out the right way to do it, finally it appears. What we need to understand is that authentic community is supernatural. Authentic community goes beyond how well we could plan and strategize, how good our ideas are. What we see here is something that comes from God. Now, when I say supernatural, please don't hear me to say that it is effortless, and please don't hear me in saying that it's inaccessible. A lot of times when I say supernatural, I hear from my background, well, that's just for the people who are up on this level up here. But supernatural now through the lens of Jesus is something that we have access to in its fullness. It requires that we step into it. And being supernatural does not mean that it cannot be experienced within the natural. What I'm saying today is the community that we're longing for, that we're made for, has to begin with God and not with us. 
So when we're reading this in Acts 2, we're not reading about a people who suddenly decided to try out community. I, I always love, and I used to do this too, but like I want to be an Acts community. I want to be a church like the church in Acts. And usually they're talking about this passage, but then there's a lot of stuff that happens after Acts 2, right? It's like, do you want the persecution part? You know, you want, you want the, the cows coming down on a blanket part? I would like that one in Acts 10. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes into community. It wasn't just a hippie commune that we often picture it to be. Community did not take place because they decided all of a sudden, wow, let's start doing this this way. We're reading about a people who were seeking and being radically transformed by the love of God and the outcome of this seeking of God and his empowering presence, the overflow was community. The overflow of God's power was connection with other people. Community, I hope you know today, and I hope we can internalize this, not only as individuals but as a church, is, is the aim, it's not the aim, it's the outcome of what we do. Community is the overflow of our connection with God moving towards others. When we experience the love and the presence of God, it is the natural overflow, the embodiment of that love that we receive, that we pour out into others consistently and intentionally. So with that in mind, with the idea forming our foundation today that this is from God and not from our abilities, not from our efforts, but from our receiving of the love of God. Now let's take a look at Acts 2. Starting in verse 42, I want to focus on two specific words today. Verse 42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Two words to point out here, two words in the Greek that I think give this section so much meaning. First is this phrase, devoted themselves, which is actually one word, this Greek word, proskatario. Those of you who went to seminary, don't you judge me, it's hard. Literally means, though, this word in the Greek means to put our strength towards something together. If you've ever had your car break down in the middle of the road and you had to kind of be the guy who opened up the door and steered it, but then people got behind you and pushed too. You ever been there before when you run out of gas and you had to get people to push in the same pattern to get you where you need to be? That's what this word means. You're pushing towards a common aim together, devoting themselves. It's not just a pie-in-the-sky experience of religion. It's a common push towards a common focus. It wasn't just something that fell in their lap. They pursued it. They cultivated it. They pushed towards this kind of authentic community together. How it says through the apostles' teaching, meaning the scriptures, they're teaching the scriptures, they're teaching their experience with Jesus, through the breaking of bread, meaning they're sharing meals, and through prayer. And this is all from this very churchy word that was always spoken but never defined. This word fellowship. That is the churchiest of churchy words. How much do you ever hear people use the word fellowship outside of the church? I'll give you a story, an example of this. My youngest son, his principal, the first time I met him, I heard him say, fellowship in a school conversation, and I went immediately and asked, is he or was he a pastor, or has he been related to a pastor, and he's a pastor's kid. You don't use this word 
outside of a church context. Fellowship, it feels so much like an old lady Sunday school word, but it's a fascinating Greek word, this word koinonia. It's a hard word to translate, but it means kind of communion and partnership and participation. It can be translated as fellowship. There's other connotations of the word in the New Testament, but it speaks to a life that it is in every way, by definition, shared. It means that the love of God has so radically been at work in our hearts that suddenly our life is not just our own. Suddenly, love has transformed the very fabric of who I am, that I cannot just understand my life as a solo project. Suddenly, I'm a part of something bigger than I've ever been before. We see this as Acts 2 continues. It says, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, koinonia wasn't just a spiritual feeling that people felt. Koinonia impacted, gulp, our stuff. Koinonia saw the love of God so totally transform us that suddenly I looked at my possessions. I look at what I've been given by God as a gift, not just to be received, but to be given. Now, I have stories upon stories upon stories of radical generosity in the church, in this church. On the January before the pandemic, January 2019, we talked about this particular passage and radical generosity. And at the end of the service, we did something crazy. We said, if you have a need... You have any need whatsoever, we want you to come to us privately. And if you here have something that you would like to give, we want you to come to us as well. After the service, you would not believe the amount of needs that were met that morning in the room because we took a passage like this seriously. Because when the love of God meets us where we are, suddenly my stuff is not just my stuff. My stuff is an opportunity to welcome and connect with others. It can be something as simple as opening your home to community group, something as simple as sharing a meal, something as simple as bringing a breakfast casserole every single week back there that we get to eat, and then I get to sit up here and burp while I'm preaching because I should not eat breakfast casserole before I stand up here. Little places of generosity sticking out everywhere as community takes shape. The Bible says the spirit, where the Spirit of the Lord, there's freedom. But I think it implicitly says that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's generosity. There are people willing to give. When I find myself, or, or rather when I am I'm found in the abundance of God, my life is no longer siloed and separated from everybody else. My story is now connected to your story. My struggles are now connected to your struggles. My needs are now connected to your needs. And because this happens, not in a vacuum of scarcity, but in the abundance of God's love, I don't have to fear you. I don't have to turn you into competition. I don't have to measure my success against yours because abundance means that there's always enough to go around. And if there's always enough to go around, I don't have to worry about that anymore. 
can be generous. This was the heartbeat, the foundation from the early church on. I love one of the early church fathers. His name was Justin Martyr. Incredible name, Justin Martyr. He, he, this is speaking about one generation after the book of Acts was written. He writes, we who used to value our acquisitions of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund and we share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. But now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and we pray for our enemies. When we say and sing that they'll know us by our love, they will know us not just by our feelings of love. They will know us by our hands, feet, and our wallets, how we invest in loving other people. I love that last statement Justin Martyr says, now because of Christ, we live together. This was the picture we see in Acts 2 as it continues. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The outcome of love in living our lives together is that I don't just share a metaphorical pew every Sunday with you. I share my table with you. And when I share my table with you, there's something about sharing our homes and sharing our tables that it is vulnerable It is far more intimate than a room like this. You get to see how well or how well I don't clean. You get to see the scars and the struggles that I'm living through, the relationships that I'm working through as you enter into not just my home but my story. It's endlessly fascinating to me that when people read about Pentecost, they think that they're was just supposed to be a perpetual version of this over and over again. A version of Christianity that just constantly said after this wonderful experience of God pouring out his Holy Spirit, hey, let's just meet here again next week and do that. That's not what happens in Acts at all. It's not what happens in church history that people just gather for one big amazing ecstatic experience over and over and over again. The outpouring of Pentecost was a natural move towards the table, to fellowship, to koinonia. Because with the risen Jesus, the beautiful picture that we have and we see and we experience is that not only are the temples the place of God, now our tables are temples too. Our living rooms are temples too. Our basements where we lock our children during group are temples too. Places where God is just as present and just as at work as they are anywhere else. It's an amazing thing when you've lived your journey, as these Acts 2 people did, where God was present in a temple in a place. And now, because of the risen Jesus, our whole life is holy ground. Our whole nation is a holy nation. Our whole world is is a holy place because we have found the risen Jesus where we are.
And I think it gives us, as we move towards closing here today, a, a radical reimagining of what it means to share our faith. A radical reimagining of that phrase in particular. Growing up, to share my faith was to intellectually wrestle my opponent into the ground and held them down until they say, I accept Jesus as my Savior, after they count to three. I remember going to many, a, many of workshops where we were told how to share Jesus without fear. And what most of them were surrounded about, about what they were focused on, was making sure you could out-argue those dangerous atheistic people out there that you better watch out for, that you better hold space against. But when we look at the early church, sharing their faith was shared kind of like a meal. You have what I have. Share into not just these ideas, these intellectual experience of what faith is about, but share Jesus in my own story. To share my faith then in light of what we see in Acts, is to share my life. I'm never just sharing an intellectual experience. It's not a disembodied doctrine apart from my stories, apart from the struggles that the gospel should itself be changing. It's never been this isolated belief that those around me I have to hold apart from because it's up here while life is down here. Instead now, when I share Jesus... I'm sharing Jesus in the life that he actually inhabits, in the story that he actually is changing, in the struggles that he actually walks through me with, step by stumbling step. To share my faith is not to just share an idea, it's to share Christ in me, Christ in that messy me, Christ in that table that I'm not sure I want to welcome people to sometimes. Christ in my darkest hour, Christ in my broken relationships, sharing that is how I share my faith. And I hope as you see this example from the scriptures here today, you are challenged to not just see your faith as you go into your workplace, as you go into your school, your job, as something you have to wrestle people into something that you share around the table, something that you welcome people into. Over and over again, what I have found is that the more people move towards Jesus, the more they naturally are drawn to move towards others in love. Over and over and over again, when people move towards Christ, I don't have to preach them into community. They naturally find their way into these loving relationships. And that's why today, as we come to Acts 2 again, a passage I've probably preached on more than just about anyone in 18 years of ministry, I have resigned from trying to preach you into community. What I'm praying for now is that you and I would have an experience of the love of God so profoundly transformative in who we are that we naturally move towards others. The temptation when we have never received the love of God is to look at people as mirrors to try to figure out who we are to try to constantly manipulate our image to try to constantly present to others who we want to be but something happens when the love of God 
steps into our shame, when the love of God steps into what we have suffered, when we receive the affirmation of this is my son, this is my daughter whom I love and whom I am well pleased, the same affirmation spoken over Jesus that is spoken in us, suddenly, suddenly we can stop using people. We can stop manipulating our image around people. Suddenly, as I receive this, as I step into this, I'm free to love people as I was called to. It's why community is is not the aim, it is the outcome. I want you to know the love of God because I know when you know the love of God, we won't have enough room in community. (laughs) We'll have to keep doing it right now. We're almost there right now. But when the love of God steps in, you will naturally move towards others' relationships. So, Lord, that's what I pray for this morning. Very practically, God, that we would just release our our need to look to others to find our identity. Lord, I want to repent of years of believing that if I strategized good enough could get people into relationships. I want to repent, God, of what so many of us in the church have done and use community as a tool instead of the outcome of love transforming hearts. And I want to pray this morning, God, that every single person in here finds relationships here where they are fully known and fully loved by God and therefore in that are able to be known and loved by one another. I want to pray for lonely people, for isolated people. By your grace, you would call them out of this isolation and into connection with the Father, connection with their brothers and sisters in Christ. How are you?